Welcome to Outspoken, where we dive deep into the topics and intersection of technology, money, business, and passion. I'm your host, Shana Cosgrove. How do you take that energy? How do I take these messages? How do I take that energy and like bottle it up into a thing that you can watch and consume and can enjoy? You set that goal out there, right? Okay, fine. It's not something I can do today. It's a puzzle at that point. What do you need to do to make that possible? If I could do research, I could use that experience to parlay me into getting practical work experience. And if I work this path, then I would be okay by the time I graduated. So I remember going to the professor saying, hey, like, I really want to work with you and do research. I don't do research with undergrads. What are you talking about? This podcast is sponsored by Nyla Technology Solutions, an SBA-certified 8A, hub-zone, woman-owned small business specializing in full-stack software engineering and data science services to the U.S. government. Our innovative solutions are built to match the speed of mission. For more information, partnering opportunities, and new job openings, please visit our website, www.nyla.io. So you got married? Yes. When did you get married? Last year, middle of COVID, just a small little ceremony with us. We had it um, all at our house. We're trying to figure out what we're going to do for the actual, for like a bigger ceremony with friends and family and everything. But we just basically had someone come out for the church and do it right there in our driveway, got dressed up, took some pictures. And who held the baby? She sat at the time because she was younger. She was in the stroller. And she was calm the whole time? She was. She was just like, what are you guys doing? Well, congratulations, Gerard. Thank you. Thank you. It's quite a change. I think you were single when when you first joined Nyla, huh? Yeah. You were going to get an MBA and I talked you out of that. Do you regret me talking you out of that? No, I don't think you talked me out of it so much. It's just the, I got a bunch of different perspectives and I just didn't think the timing was right. I still am interested in doing that. And I think the timing might even get better in a year or two. Tell me about your day job. What do you do for your day job? It's been a little over almost coming up on a year and a half. So I've been at Amazon Web Services, really helping support their cloud initiatives for a range of customer sets, primarily for the IC space, but blurring into, you know, how those spaces overlap with their commercial efforts. Specifically, I started out in the EC2 division, Elastic Compute. That's where you typically launch a virtual machine or something like that. And then migrated more recently into what sort of they call the region services team. So you could think of it as like cross-functional. So if you've got all of AWS, all of these services, region services tries to provide cross-cutting functionality that, for example, EC2, if you think of just classically instances or DynamoDB, or these things are very siloed. I'm on a team now that's more focused on solving problems that all of these silos teams don't look at that are kind of a pain for everybody. Is it meeting with customers or you're engineering all day long? This particular role is engineering all day long. When I was thinking about switching roles, I I went through sort of this dog and pony show talking to different teams. So I I think one of the most interesting roles I talked to was the worldwide developer advocacy team. Some people on that team were in Germany. Some people on that team were in Brazil. And some people on that team were just, you know, I think it was only like eight people spread across the whole world owning like different verticals. So it's not customer facing, it's internal facing, but we do have a service that we offer. So we do 
indirectly interface with customers. So we'll have someone who might be a solutions architect or technical account manager or somebody like that who's meeting with a customer day to day. But we have a customer facing service, which is different than what I started with. So in, where I was supporting an EC2 before, we kind of, you could think of it kind of like how some SREs, even though it wasn't quite an SRE role, but you could think of it sort of this background role behind service teams is what we call them, service teams. We didn't own a service, which is different from where I'm at now, where we actually have a service that customers use that we could get feedback on, that customers might have a problem with, et cetera. So are you supporting the C2S as well? Oh, yes. That's one of the customer spaces that I support. Where do you work? So I was worked the last year and some change out of the new office down in Arlington, and they're still working on a bunch of new offices in that area. So I was in one of their early offices that they put down in that area. And then the EC2 department that I worked in previously was one of the biggest departments. They originally had their headquarters in Herndon and then in Seattle. So Seattle and Herndon, and they opened two smaller satellite offices or teams, I should say, in Arlington and Colorado. So I was one of the first people they hired out of the Arlington office and started helping them build that team up. Well, you're the first person I have interviewed that works in Amazon. So tell everyone about the interview process. What was that like? Did they reach out to you? You reached out to them. How did they find you? Google said this, and I think Amazon falls in the same boat where they, they kind of talked about keeping a database of all engineers in all of US that probably have more than three years of experience and reaching out to them. And they, they were kind of talked about like, yeah, we've probably hit up 80% of all engineers in all of the United States. And I think Amazon's probably in the same boat because yes, they hit me up and this is probably the 10th time. <laughs> However, you end up in their system, you just get rotated forever. The interview process is probably what you've heard, right? So Amazon loves their leadership principles. And essentially, the interview is broken down into a couple halves. So almost every round is going to include some leadership principle portion. This is what sort of you call a standard behavioral interview, really driven on the star format, situation, task, action result. So basically being able to form your story in, in a way that people can understand what you did, why you did it, and what the outcome was, if you put it in another way. And then from there, their interview process has a technical portion, um, and that's some combination of software development, scripting, troubleshooting, networking problems, systems design. It ends up being a couple hours process. Now, this is in the middle of COVID. Was it all virtual then? It was all virtual. And still today, most of our interviews are, are virtual. So I haven't seen any physical on-site loops on any of the teams that I've supported. Um, everything has been completely virtual. How did you prep for the interview? The bulk of the positions they have in the technical realm are software development engineers, which typically called SDE. And I was interviewing for a position called systems development engineers, which has a gigantic overlap with SDE, but is also a little bit different. Preparing for that, I think, is 10 times harder because the breadth of what they could ask you is like a mile wide. Compared to SDE, you pretty much could say, hey, if I focus on algorithms and system design and the state of that art is pretty well defined, you kind of know, hey, you know, I can go crack in the coding interview, I can go on leak code, I can go do some systems design reviews. And that's kind of the scope. But for systems developer, like, what are they going to ask me about networking, right? Networking is a body of art in itself. What are they going to ask you 
about systems administration. Who knows? What are they going to ask you about troubleshooting? For those areas, I reviewed the basics just to remind myself of stuff that you know you generally know, but you might forget just so that I could be easier to recall. And then from the other stuff, just practice the development opportunities, the same way that I described the SDE part, so the system design and the, and the development. The system design, I was a little bit anal about it. That's the part when you ask about being virtual. I refuse to do it in a virtual tool. So people who's listening can't see this, but I have a, a camera in front of me. And on this camera, there's a zoom lens. So I had a whiteboard behind me and I just like reached up and zoomed in on the camera and drew everything on the whiteboard still so that I wouldn't have to do it. Because like, no matter how good the drawing tools are, they're still not that good for an interview. Did that just win them over? Maybe. That you were like, no, no, I have to use a whiteboard. <laughs> yes. That's like the biggest sign you're an engineer where you're like, uh, I have to go to the whiteboard during the middle of the interview. They're like, done. Yeah, I, I had it already in focus, had my name on it. So I was just <laughs> ready to go. And then I could just turn around when the question started and just start writing on it. I didn't know which interview that was going to be in. So I just had to be prepared. Are you able to use the internet to search for answers or look up things during your interview? Absolutely not. Everything has to come right off the top of your head. So whatever whatever they ask, you do your best to answer the question. And if you don't know, you can say, hey, like, I'm, I don't really know the answer to that. That's the other semi-nice part about interviewing for a position that's super broad is they also don't expect you to know everything about everything. But it also leaves you in a place where it might be harder to understand how you did because, hey, you didn't know about this area, but you know about the other one. Was the interview recorded? How many people were sitting in? Was it one-on-one? -on -one? It was five rounds. Each of them was one-on-one -on -one except one round, but that was because a person was shadowing. At Amazon, you have to do a certain number of interviews to interview on your own. And until then, you have to shadow other people. So that person hadn't done enough interviews to do it on their own, which was interesting because the person shadowing, I mentioned I was joining a new site. So the person shadowing was my manager but he didn't have enough interviews under his belt to do the interview alone. So I had to interview with the senior manager who was over the entire department, which is all the sites on the East Coast. Five rounds of interviews. How long is each round? Hour. And does each round contain both the behavioral and the technical? Are you looking for more from your career than just a paycheck? At Nyla, we offer that and so much more. Join us for a career where your growth is our priority, with generous pay, unbeatable benefits, and a supportive environment that cheers on your every achievement. We're scouting for top-tier data scientists, software engineers ready for something bigger. Ready to be a part of a company that cares about where you're going? We're ready for you. Check us out at nylatechnologysolutions.com or drop us a line at hello at nyla.io. Most of them, if it's four or five rounds, something in that ballpark, then one round is probably all behavioral. Amazon has this thing that's uniform throughout the company, what they call the bar raiser. So Amazon loves to use this lingo around, you know, meeting the bar, exceeding the bar, bar raising capability. Let's say you're interviewing, in my case, it was five people. One of those people is not going to be in your department at all. So one of those people are going to be completely different area of the company. 
I mean, they could be a fulfillment manager. They could be a manager working in Alexa. You know, they could be working on retail. They could be anywhere in the company as long as they're at your level or higher. So Amazon has this hierarchy leveling system where each person's level is assigned to them for their role. So if you're interviewing for an L5 position, then everybody who's interviewing you will be at least an L5 somewhere in the company or higher. You have this independent bar raiser person, and that's typically going to be all behavioral, but everything else is likely to have a technical portion. Was this all in one week? All in one day. What did you do after the end of the day? Relaxed. (laughs) (laughs) Were you stressed? There's good stress, and then there's like stressing too much. You know, I'm uh, you could probably tell I'm even kill, so I don't, I usually don't stress too much, but like I ran track in high school. Before every race, you have the nervous jitters. Now, the jitters aren't big enough that it affects you racing or performing or doing anything like that, but you always have the jitters whenever you're doing something that has some level of impact, some adrenaline that's going to get you pumped in. Were you interviewing for other companies at the time? I was interested in Amazon mostly because I had been interested in what they were doing for a while. So I didn't wasn't really interested in interviewing with other companies. However, the art of negotiation is kind of better if you can have multiple offers and things of that going on, just more options right. on the table to really help with that process when it comes. So I randomly, as soon as I had my interview scheduled, <laughs> I went on LinkedIn and I like pinged a couple companies. It was like... You guys are always pinging me, like, are you guys open to interview me now? And how quick can you do it? Can you do it like in the next couple of days? <laughs> <laughs> do any of the salaries even compare? It's it's a market is crazy. Um, and the DC market's evolving. And I, I, I'm just going to colloquially call it the DC market, but I sure. really mean everywhere between like Northern Virginia and Baltimore, but all of it in the middle. You've got more commercial companies in play now in that market if you want to go like completely commercial, nothing government related. There's the other government players. So I knew Microsoft was trying to move into the area. So they got back to me outrageously quickly and they were like, we do interviews every single Friday. Do you want to sign up for one on Friday? I was like, okay, fine. Let's do that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did have uh, your mentor or friend had gone there before you, right, Nathan? Yes and no. We're in the IC space, and part of the IC space is this clearance process. I actually had interviewed at both companies, gotten offers before Nathan had done anything, but I was in limbo for months at a time because clearance reinvestigations and things like that, I didn't know what was going to happen. At a certain point, I wasn't even sure if I was going to even try to change jobs because I didn't, you know, COVID was happening. These offices were all like in limbo. Nobody knew what was going on. And I was like, you know, I'm not moving (laughs) unless we can figure out what that means, like what the effect is. I've seen people kind of get stuck in a blender and can never really figure out their way out because the process just takes a long or they give up. So you got an offer from both companies? Yes. I got to do the perfect, you know, play them against each other in a good way, find the best opportunity. Were you seriously considering Microsoft or was was your heart in Amazon? I would have if it was something interesting. Microsoft's an old company, right? And so they have some really, really old stacks. For example, Microsoft Exchange is an ancient zombie that you <laughs> you could not you could not beg me to go work on it. So it, funny thing is, I told him I was like, "Hey, you know, I'm interested, but here are areas in Microsoft that you just couldn't get me to work." And then we finished the interview loop, and they say, "Yep, okay, so we have an offer for you, and it's to go work on Exchange." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, okay." Did they really? Yes. 
They didn't want you to work on Azure or their cloud environment? I named all kind of areas I could work on. You could never get me to go touch Exchange. I have a really important question, Gerard. Okay. Are you allowed to say, go Google that at Amazon? Google? I mean, Amazon doesn't have a search engine. <laughs> 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 yeah, I Google that all the time. I know, but Google's got their cloud architecture. I think Amazon is pretty confident like, in what they're doing right now that... Obviously, there's there's other market players, you know, trying to encroach on and already starting to encroach on what they're doing. But I don't know if you've seen earnings last year. AWS grew by something like 30 something percent right? on already the largest business segment of Amazon. What was the onboarding process like? Give us the insight to being an engineer at Amazon. Amazon is an interesting place. There's some things I love and that annoy me about Amazon. You know, the big companies have a reputation for tooling and they have a lot of tooling. Like they have a lot of tools. Sort of what I describe from a software engineering perspective being sort of like the holy grail of doing software and operations right would be you have your CI CD, you have a good pipeline system, you have a good path to manage configuration, you have a good path to push it into production. Okay, once you get it in production, you have a good path to test new code. So you have a good place to run or run code that does not have production data. And then you have another path to push code that gets some portion of production data. And then you have another path that you can, okay, finally turn that on. And so you've got like, you know, unit testing, then you've got that integration environment, you've got that semi-prod environment, and then you've got the production environment. Every place I've ever worked, we got to build that in addition to the product that you're building. If you're lucky, you might get a piece of that, right? You might, maybe somebody will do the CICD part for you and it might be okay. It might be serviceable for whatever you're trying to do. But no matter what, I've, I've never really seen a place I've gotten to work where you get all those pieces. And I've been in places where we put it all in place to the point where we had the integration environments, but the holy grail was the pre-prod production. So like you can get it in production and get some production data you could see what that does to your thing, and you can decide if you're really to push this into production. And that is so rare. That is so rare. All of the tooling is just there. Like they have the automation. And if you're starting a new project, like you could just pull down a templated project, run it, and then you get like almost all of that comes with it. You set up a few of these other pieces, and boom, there you go. Like you have best practices of a production service. The other thing is high quality metrics. So, okay, so we've got quality deployment and then you've got like high quality metrics. Amazon, to an insane degree, is a metrics culture. Like everything has a dashboard, everything has a metrics, and everything has a metrics ops view probably every week where you could go see said dashboard. Like if you don't have a dashboard, you don't have metrics. And so that makes things like really good. You could see very quickly why and how they can build services relatively quickly when they have the things in place. But then I start saying like really odd stuff, like because individual teams can do what they want, it's not uncommon to see things where you're like, what? Why did you do it that way? How, how, like, how is it possible that you built this service like this? And then you fast forward and it's like, oh, well, I know how it's possible because all of this other tooling is amazing. When you have all of the bumpers in place for you, you can do something fast and like, if it's not perfect then you can roll it back, you can roll it forward. And since you can take more risks, you see some places where you're like, oh yeah, they took a risk. 
and they have the technical debt, and they'll probably never come back to that. So it's just kind of the ugly head that's over there for a while. What was it like starting a new job in the middle of COVID? In the places and spaces where we work, if you're in the DOD space, right, there are mission needs that require you to go to the office. I worked from home for two weeks, and then I started going to the office three or four days a week. And the office is barren because there's only people who are also supporting things that need to be, you know, they need to come to the office for. So in my case, okay, I saw my team members, <laughs> right? I met with them. It wasn't as drastic as maybe, you know, someone who onboards to, you know, a fully remote team. I've seen a lot of clips of you on YouTube. Tell me about your side hustles. How many side hustles do you have going on? Can you list them at a high level? I always have probably two too many, <laughs> if I'm being honest. I just started something brand new this week on Monday. Have you ever heard of MLT? No. What is MLT? Management Leadership for Tomorrow is what it's called. It's a nonprofit. They're out of Bethesda, but they're a nationwide nonprofit. And what they're focused on is helping underrepresented minorities get into high trajectory, high growth jobs and opportunities. And so they have a number of programs. So they, their initial focus was around MBAs or, or business school. Their founder was like a Harvard business grad and had this vision, essentially started out this MBA program. And so they'll, they'll bring in a cohort of students. This cohort of students will go through usually a year to 18 month program, comprehensive program. And then the goal is to get these into a range of MBA schools and get their career launched off successfully and then sort of have sort of this like family-like 360 um, network, et cetera. They sort of brag about their statistics of, you know, of our cohort, like 80% of the students that exit, you know, are in top 10 MBA programs and, you know, they go off and do amazing things. I heard about them because one of my best friends from undergrad went through this program probably in the 2013, 14 range, maybe in that range. And he also ended up going to Harvard Business School, et cetera. But they have a lot of programs now. So that's their MBA program. They have another program for if you want to get into venture capital um, investing. So they've got connections to Anderson Horowitz and all these other companies. They have another program if you want to get into software development. I just joined as a career coach to help out with their cohorts that they have. So you, you start with a group coming in, rising juniors, and you basically support that cohort of students through graduation. And how many hours a week does that involve for you? It'll range probably 10 to 15. Once you kind of get up to speed and once I, once I get up to speed, I'll be meeting with students weekly, talking with them about their plans, helping them frame how they should spend their time, what they can do, how they can best position themselves, what things they can work on, keeping them motivated and encouraged. How old are most of these people? So rising juniors and undergrad through graduation. That's really nice. That's very generous of you to give so much time. Are you still working about 32 hours a week? So when Gerard worked for Nyla, he took his Fridays off, reserved 20% for his own adventures. What were you doing when you worked for Nyla and are you still working on that project? I'm not still working on that project. I still think it was a great idea. I'm still thinking something that's interesting, but what I'm also recognizing is I'm at a different place and I don't want to take on a project that's too outrageously grandiose right now. And that project was going to take way too much time and effort to really, really get going. And short of basically 
quit my job and going 100% on that, I didn't really see how I was going to really be able to, to move the needle. What I got more interested in is like, what opportunities can I look at that are more scoped to the time that I have? That'll still be sort of a, a good growth, a good adventure, a good journey that I'll be happy with, you know, what I produce, et cetera. You've been creating these YouTube videos. How did that start? I'm full-time, so, you know, roughly 40 hours, you know, give or take, whatever's going on. Less free time. You know, I've got a two-year-old that daddy loves to spend time with. And a wife. And a wife. <laughs> yes, correct. And a wife. That you want to stay married to. Uh, yes, we just came back. We just took some, some us time. We just came back from a weekend vacation, so that was nice. And all of these things need space for. So it's like, all right, well, I kind of have this. And it's, it's a common analogy, but one that I like to use is sort of like planting seeds, right? I have plants behind me that are growing. When you plant some seeds and you water them and you close your eyes like, and you just continue to do the good things, like what happens when you open your eyes three to four years from now? And so I was like, well, what can I do that's just like a progressive watering? Something that I'll enjoy, but something that can also grow. Something that I might be able to think about creatively leveraging into other, you know, a different path. And I thought that this YouTube thing is very interesting in that regard. I found YouTube to be a really interesting social media platform. I think it's noticeably different than pretty much every other platform out there. Search on YouTube is really good. And that has a very fascinating effect in that in most other platforms, how much you market your content is as almost as important as the content itself. And then once you get a following, then the content can expand organically, but you have to sort of get the ball moving first. It's really, really hard on other social media platforms to you know start from nothing, although it is possible. I think on the other end, on YouTube is the easiest platform to go from nothing to something without a lot of outside marketing. And a lot of that has to do with creating content that's interesting and there, you know, we talked about metrics and monitoring and tooling and all of that kind of stuff. You know, they have a very comprehensive algorithm and a very comprehensive metrics system that can help you very, very organically find your target audience, like your persona. If you know who your persona is, like who you're talking to, and you make content for that persona, and it's pretty good. It doesn't even have to be amazing. It's just pretty good. You will likely find that audience on YouTube. I can't say that that's true for many other social media platforms. So because of that base, I said, okay, well, I could do slow and steady. I could find my target audience. And then once I have that, I can kind of figure out what I want to parlay that into later. And obviously, I can name off four or five potential avenues you can go with that. But you don't have to put the cart before the horse. Tell us a little bit about what your content is. It is meant to personify the conversations between my friends and I, specifically in the technology space. All of the type of elevator or hallway conversations I'll have with friends that I've met, that I've built up over the time in the industry of the type of things we text each other, the type of things we talk about. So this is typically a person who has some experience. Um, they've worked in the industry for some amount of time. So let's say two to three years. Um, they have a breadth of experience and a lot of those things I talked about for the SysDev position, right? So some things in networking, some things in software development, you know, maybe they have interest in machine learning and they're really curious on how all that stuff works. 
And some of the most curious of us will always have a project going, exploring those areas. And the ones who don't have the time always have a blog post up, you know, are always reading the next thing. So I said, well, like, how do you take that energy? How do I take like these messages, these text messages? How do I take that energy and like bottle it up into a thing that you can watch and consume and can enjoy? I think another thing that I've been fun exploring is just really pushing boundaries on expectations. I've never really been afraid to do something different. You know, I think the left brain, right thing is debunked, but I'm left brain in the sense that like, it has to make sense to me. Like if you can't make it make sense to me, then I might struggle to do it, which is different than some people who are more impulsive. So I couldn't do YouTube impulsively. I have a vision for the content that I will produce and what it will look like. And it will take many, many, many hours and so much practice to be able to produce that kind of content. So the hardest part isn't the filming myself. It's the releasing content that is a mile away from what I want it to be, knowing that I have to release that content in order to get the practice out, in order to be able to bake the content I want to make. So I've probably only done like 25 videos. My more recent ones are so much better, yet still so far away from where I know they need to be. How often do you film them? I have a vision that I would be producing it, filming and editing three videos a week. Oh my God, that's a lot. Oh yeah, it's, I'm not even close. That's the beauty, right? So you set that goal out there, right? So then, okay, fine. It's not something I can do today. It's a puzzle at that point. What do you need to do to make that possible? One means you need to actually learn how to edit. Okay, then once you learn it, then you got to learn one skill at a time, incorporate that skill, keep learning. And all of a sudden, part of video editing that you were doing that was taking you forever, now you can do that in 10 minutes. And it's like, all right, keep pulling those things down. Um, the next thing was programming. Like Some content requires a ton of research, a ton of detail, planning. So maybe I can only do one super detailed video every two weeks, maybe two moderately detailed and four low detail videos and mix that in. So like, all right, now what's that plan? What does it mean to write the copy, to do the whole script so that when I sit down to film, I can film all three all at the same time so that I can edit all three all at the same time. What's your most popular video? I think I got a couple out there with a few thousand views. You're not checking your stats, Gerard? You know... I'm You're not using that you. to inform your next programming? No, I am, but I'm not. I realized some stuff. And, and the biggest thing I realized is it can have a, a narcissistic effect. The reality is I already know what I need to do for the next seven videos-ish. And I'm checking feedback. I'm looking at the comments and all of that. But you can get absorbed in it, right? Like, like I, I went down this dark path of being on YouTube studio every hour of the day. And then even when it's time to like film and edit, spending an hour or two on YouTube studio, right? Obviously, if you're doing that, then you haven't made it. <laughs> you haven't, you're, you've wasted two good hours. So like, it's one thing to go on there and do the research. And then it's another thing to just get absorbed in there. So I, I've gotten to a healthier place where I'm not absorbed in the analytics anymore. I go in there, I try to check it like every couple of weeks. Also, the other thing is like when you make a video, sometimes it might take a month for you to actually have enough data to know 
if that video was good or bad. There's two data points. There's like, what did the video do in the first 48 hours? And then what did the video do over the course of the first two months? Everything in the between can just be red herring signals. So take us back to the beginning. How did you grow up? What was your childhood like? My dad was in the army. I was born in Kansas, but I wasn't there very long. I was there a couple of months. Then was in Hawaii for a few years. So I actually remember Hawaii. And then came to Maryland after that. He was a a civilian or he was an officer enlisted? He was in the army. He was enlisted in the army. Worked in the army for I think maybe like eight years. And you're an only child? I have a sister and I have a brother. Each of us have seven years apart. So I'm the oldest. How did you decide as a young man that you were going to be an electrical engineer? A little bit of whimsy, a little bit of exploration. I went to middle school and high school in Baltimore County. And in middle school, I felt like I was good at math. In high school, I felt like I was good at math. But at high school, I felt like I ran out of um, runway. I was just like blazing through math like it was too easy. So I enrolled in community college. And it was one of these dual enrollment. Yeah, in, in high school. So it was a dual enrollment program. The way that it worked in Baltimore County when I went to school is community college is already cheap. But if you're enrolled in high school, then it's half off. And then I got like exemptions from part of school to go to the community college, take some classes. So I think before I graduated high school, I think I may have took like four classes. And it became very clear. It was like, you're good at math, sort of. Because I take that college placement exam and they were like, yeah, like we're just going to put you in like the calculus before (laughs) pre-calc. But math was most interesting. So I was like, hey, what are are these math related things? So my mom took me to a lot of these fairs, went to these STEM fairs, these career fairs. And I saw some guy with like some schematic. I just remember asking him a bunch of questions. And I think ever since that day, I was like, okay, fine. I'll just do this electrical engineering thing. That sounds like, that seems interesting. We also had a program called NSBE, Pre-College Initiative Program, stands for National Society of Black Engineers. It is a student-run organization. It's a mostly U.S. national, but there are chapters across the globe. It's mostly at the college level, but there are a couple of pre-college initiative programs. And since it's a college and student-run program, all of the pre-college initiatives, so the non-undergraduate programs, are shepherded by a local university. So a university has to take on managing that pre-college initiative program. So Hopkins managed our program. So Hopkins engineering students who were NSBE members managed our program. So I joined that for a few years. And so there's a big national convention every year, huge recruiting event. All, like A lot of major companies are all out there and they have tons of workshops. Almost every major tech company you can name of during that. Then you've got the whole conference side of the hall where it's a combination of students. And you're in high school. Yeah. So I started in high school and I was in this all throughout college as well. So I think that sort of cemented the, okay, yeah, I'll do this engineering thing. I think there's a path here. How did you decide where to go? I tried to do like a data-driven thing. Basically what I figured out is some schools have engineering programs, but some schools don't have like fully fledged engineering programs. Are they ABET accredited? That's the accreditation for engineering. And then do they have the classical engineering majors? So electrical, mechanical, chemical is kind of in there now, civil engineering. If they don't have at least those four, then they're probably a very small school. So you can exclude those schools. And then you look at selectivity in the engineering program. And that basically was like, all right, I'm just going to pick a range of schools. (laughs) 
I think I applied to like seven or eight schools. How'd you make your final decision? Some combination of money and interest. I knew about some schools whose engineering programs I really liked. So I, I kind of had, from the HBCU perspective, like North Carolina A&T, Morgan State, and Howard University on the list. From the non-HBCUs, I had um, Rochester Institute of Technology and Penn State on the list. But it was kind of those five. I narrowed out Morgan because I grew up in Baltimore County, felt like it was way too close to home. Rochester Institute of Technology gave me probably half of what it cost, but that was like by far the most expensive school on the list. My number one choice, I think, ended up being Penn State. Penn State had a come out, come join us event. And Penn State, I don't know, it just kind of vibed with me. And they had this, I just distinctly remember one of these people talking and they said something along the lines of, we want everybody in our, joins our engineering programs to graduate in five years. And what we want them to do is have four years of matriculation at the university. And then we want them to do two six-month co-op tours. And we wanted that to help you get significant work experience. And, you know, it gets you a, a year closer to be taking the professional engineering exam. And they were like, you know, we just found from tracking all this information, following up with our students, that our students just accelerate their career significantly just by the maturation process of having worked with two longer term co-ops. And I ended up trying to do my own co-op thing. I did a pre-college program with Howard University Science, Engineering, Mathematics program. It was cool. They paid you like a $2,000 stipend, brought you out to campus, had these professors teaching you stuff ahead of time. I remember this program and I I got into it in a weird way where I think (laughs) they sent it to me, the program. And they were like, oh, you're accepted this program. I didn't know what it was. And I was like, sure, this sounds great. You want to pay me two grand to come before school? I'll be there. And then they sent me another letter saying, no, actually, that was a mistake. And it's, this requires an application. <laughs> I'm like, oh, okay, fine. I'll apply. And I remember like bugging them like every week to the point to the lady that was running the program was like, Mr. Spivey, we have noted that you have called us and <laughs> you do not need to call us anymore. We're sure that you're going to get great news in a week or so. And I got accepted. And I looked at like, all of the like GPAs of high school and SAT scores of all the students. And I always say to like, scroll down this list of people and try to find what looks like it doesn't belong. And I was like, that's my name. <laughs> so I pestered my way in. But all my friends were, you know, that 3.5 GPA first semester, freshmen, internships after freshman year, internships lined up after sophomore year. So I said, all right, brainstorm time. How do I do this? Like, how do I get an opportunity when I graduate that I want, that I'm interested in, when they care about having experience. But in order to get experience, you need that 3.0 GPA, which I don't have. And I had a professor, power systems professor, so you know, electricity going long ranges. And he, he would go on these random tangents. And he would say, undergrad students, you don't learn anything in undergrad and definitely not electrical engineering. You just learned how to think. You don't know nothing. You don't know anything. He's like, if you want to make this undergrad degree worth anything before you go to grad school, pick one topic and master that to the best of your ability. So I was like, okay, what topic have I seen so far that I'm actually pretty good at? And the topic was digital systems. So digital systems is sort of the area in electrical engineering that existed before computer engineering. 
So that's all of the digital components that make up a computer, really, right? And so you can compose these things to build larger digital structures to make all the ones and zeros do what a computer does. And I was like, oh, I'm doing pretty good at this computer thing. So I, I put my pestering hat on again and pestered that professor. So my theory was this. If I could do research, I could use that experience to parlay me into getting some practical work experience. And if I work this path, then I would be okay by the time I graduated. So I remember going to the professor saying, hey, like I've been doing pretty good at this digital system stuff. I really want to like work with you and do research. I don't do research with undergrads. What are you talking about? Like, go away. <laughs> He's like, I was like, oh, that's not the response I was expecting to get. And this professor was really good, but he was also like very like poignant. Like, I remember one day after class, I asked a question in class and we're, and we're all leaving the room. And he just pauses and turns and looks at me and says, that question you asked today? People who do research with me don't ask those questions. <laughs> I, was like, <laughs> and I was like, oh my gosh. And then another time he hits me. He's like, I'm coming in. He said, You said you want to do research, right? You've been saying that. You've been, you keep bugging me. We got a test at the end of the week, right? I hope you do well. I got a 98 on that exam. Holy cow. Fast forward, I never get him to commit to let me do research with me. Sitting at home, I'm. Summer's getting ready to start. Like campus is pretty much over, and my phone rings, and, and it's this professor calling me. He says, "Hey, Gerard, uh, you said you want to do research with me, right?" I said, "Yeah, yeah, I, I want to do research." He's like, "Fine, I, I, I think I can, I can do something with you." I told him when I could start, and I was like, "I could work for free, even though I don't know how I was going to do that, like how I was going to find a place to live or whatever." And he's like, "No, no, no. Anybody who works for me gets paid." He's like, "I got research grant money. You can get paid, and you can come work with me." So. He turned out to be our main expert in digital systems. So he taught our digital systems, our advanced digital systems, our VLSI design. So I took like every course he offered. The research he was doing was with a multiple PhD students. One was like an atmospheric physicist doing high-performance computing with balloons that go up in the air, doing computational analysis. Another one that was reconfigurable computing, that was his main thing, where you have like a thing called an FPGA, call them field programmable gate arrays, special computer chips where you could do computations and reconprogram the chip so that you can make it do applications significantly faster. So that was my one area, right? The other professor said, you need to go find one thing and get really good at it. So I said, I'm going to be really darn good at this digital system thing. So I wrote up some paper. We had some little papers we wrote up. Uh, I presented at various conferences, won a couple conferences on some of the papers that I had done. And so I had like these giant poster boards. And I said, you know, I think I got some good material. Let me go ask around. I did some research and I saw that a lab at George Washington University was doing reconfigurable computing. So I presented to them and then I went to that big Nesby conference and I, I met this guy at the Intel booth and I handed my resume. My GPA still wasn't good, but I was like, hey, like I really know a lot about this digital system stuff. So he starts quizzing me like up and down, left and right about everything related to digital systems. And I just had it, you know, I knew everything I knew about digital systems at the time. So he said, you know, I'm a senior director, actually, and I can do what I want, basically, is what he told me. <laughs> He's like, the company has a 3.0 thing, but for someone like you, like, you actually know what you're talking about. Like, it's not a problem. So I said, ooh, this is my time. They're letting me in. So when the recruiter called me back and said everything was lined up for a three-month internship, I told them, I was like, so I know this is supposed to be three months, but can we make it a year? So this goes back to the Penn State two six-month co-op tours thing. And they were like, uh, well, we got it. Let me go see. 
And they came back and said, yeah, we could do it. So I went to Arizona. I went and worked at Intel for a year in this high-speed digital validation lab, specifically for like signals, which was different. They were doing a different project, but they needed someone with some digital systems experience around FPGAs. So I got to do all this really cool work around validating electrical signals for PCI Express, serial ATA, all of these signals that come off of chips and work with like really, really, really smart people. You know, I paired up with a guy who had been designing power supplies. Power supplies is like the thing that does power regulation on a chip. So not the power supply of like the whole computer, but the power regulation of the chip. So I'm like absorbing, I'm a sponge. I was on a different track at Howard. So I was on a five-year track. So it's going to take me one year longer. Then I took a year to do this. So six years from when I started. I did this after year three. So when I came back, School was totally different mentally at that point. The thing that the Penn State guy said was going to happen, happened, right? Like school seemed slow. I felt old. So I reached back out. My professor left to go be in the department chair at North Carolina a So my professor I was doing research with was gone. I went back to the team over in um, George Washington University and said, hey, I'm back from Arizona. Can I work with you guys? And they were like, oh, yeah, you can work with us. So I worked with them for a year doing high-performance computing. He taught graduate classes, and in D.C., there's a thing called a consortium. So you can take classes at any school in the D.C. region as long as they don't offer the class at your school. Well, what's the likelihood you offer a 6,000-level parallel computing course? Like, zero. Nobody else teaches that course. So I could take all of his courses. So these are graduate courses now. So I'm taking all of his master's courses. I'm working in his lab, the only undergraduate person there in the lab. He mostly has postdocs, PhD students, and only like maybe two master's students. I'm doing research with him in high-performance computing for a year. So I did a year of research and reconfigurable computing before I left, a year of work experience, a year of high-performance computing. And then my last year, I did embedded computing with another professor at Howard. So when I was finished, like I knew a few things. <laughs> I love that you always forged your own path and really were persistent and didn't stick with no's. I think that's really an admirable trait and interesting that you learned it so young or it was instinctual at such a young age. What advice would you give back to your younger self? The advice I have for my younger self is the same advice I have for my current self, interestingly, is I am this weird combination of critical thinker, idea person, and likes to do. But the problem is idea and like to do things hands-on kind of comes into one problem. It's called follow-through. And so I'm okay at it. And I put deliberate systems in place for myself to force myself to follow through on things, but I'm still not where I need to be. And I think just the better I personally could be at, at that follow-through, right? right? You hear it in some of those stories, right? I had to pester the professors. I had to do the work, right? So the, there's stories about follow-through, but at the same time, there's all the other opportunities that I think also could have really been amazing catapults that I wasn't necessarily able to take advantage of because I had okay follow-through. Well, I would reframe it as not necessarily a negative thing, and especially if it's a hard personality trait that's unlikely to change, is that you probably need to continue to be the person who can take blank sheets of paper and blank ideas and bring ideas to fruition develop them into the prototype, and then be paired with someone who likes that kind of continuous execution. I'm smiling because that's my current plan right now. <laughs> I'm trying to hire two interns. 
I had this person pull me aside once and he said, Shana, you're not the donut maker. Which, and he meant like, I'm not the person to show up steadily every day and continue to oversee a steady, defined process. I'm the one who says, oh, we should make these round things. We should put some glaze on it. And so I'm sympathetic that it's fun to do the creation, but in business you're typically always paired if it's a visionary is typically paired with an executor, but it's hard when you've got kind of both, but you're not super strong at the stamina of an executor. Exactly. I think it's more rare to find someone who is very comfortable with a set of unknowns and creating something. I think more people are comfortable with this prescribed path and then deviating maybe some from the prescribed path, but you basically always have continued to decide what your path is for you. What book have you read that's either impacted you a lot personally or professionally? It's a Peter Thiel book. Zero to one? It is zero to one. And he talks a lot about this concept of like competitive monopolies. What does it mean to be such a differentiator that even though you're still in a competitive market, like you still own that market because they can't get over the moat of your competitive advantage. And so it's not a moat created by policy, right? It's not a moat created by like things that allow you to be complacent. It's a moat created by doing something of significant enough value that you are valued regardless. And I feel like that's how I've tried to treat my personal career. I always have these sort of informal or or semi-formal mentorships with other people. And one of the things that I've always tried to say is that like, if you're in a good spot in your career, when you're valued for the thing you're going to do next, versus the thing you did previously, what you're going to do next is your competitive value. That is what you bring to the table. I heard another idea similar to that, where sometimes it's the fusion of multiple things. Maybe you're not the absolute very best, but you know a lot about X and you know a lot about Y and maybe even a third element. And it's the fusion of that together and the expression of that is so interesting and unique that no one had ever thought of it that way. And that is your advantage. Is there another book? This is a what I call a right time, right place book. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, he does it a really good job of painting pictures that people understand. And so the pictures at the time that I read the book were painted and I understood them like almost as soon as I read it. I was like, oh, I get what you're saying. That makes perfect sense. And so I have literally just been inching my way of like implementing all these different things. And I'm seeing all of the fruit sort of bear from all of these different activities of like trying to move yourself to a more of an investor class, trying to move yourself into more of an owner class. How do you like move your time around? How do you reshape that? When did you read the book? I probably was like 20, 21, that age range. I didn't have anyone in my life who thought like that or that I knew to teach me those ideas. Did you? Not that in that way. I knew of some entrepreneurial people, but you know, some of the things that it's it's really trying to drive out, no. I heard that he actually created the book just for marketing the game. And it was the book that became a runaway sensation. So he created the game first. And then a marketer was like, well, we should create a, a book to go with it. Oh, interesting. I thought it was <laughs> the other that way around. Yeah. I know. Isn't that fascinating? I always thought it was the other way around. So it's funny you say that, right? Like, because when I talk about parlaying like YouTube, that I mean, it's literally what I mean, right? It's can you build 
greenfield material that gets people interested in you such that if you have other tangentially related activities that they're willing to spend their money there. Even if I don't know what that is yet, like you still have to do step one of like building that audience, so to speak. You worked for Nyla for four years. The vision, at least that as I understood it for Nyla, was to have really good people who could do thought leadership and to drive our, our mission partners into, or just even influence, you know, not even necessarily drive all the time, but influence our mission partners, you know, to deliver on the things that they're trying to accomplish better, more efficiently, et cetera. And by that token, I think what Nyla is willing to embody is that in order to have people who are like truly like the thought leaders, I think Nyla more so than any other place that I've seen is willing to embrace the uniqueness that comes with the type of person that's going to be at that forefront, right? Everybody's a individual, but you said this a little bit earlier when we were talking about, hey, some people are more visionary, some people are falling to a cog. For me, joining Nyla was like, you know, I was swirling in my head about where I wanted to go and how I wanted to do, how I wanted to use my time. And when I got introduced to you, you were like, okay, yeah, let's do it. Oh, you want to figure that out? Let's, let me show you how I can help you. Not everybody is open to even having that conversation, right? It's, it's seen as cumbersome. It's seen as, I don't know, somebody might be viewed as a prima donna or all these other things that come along with, you know, you trying to really explore for yourself and then also explore on how to provide for, for your customers. I think it's that place where I felt like I could be Gerard. I could be the creative Gerard, not just the Gerard that, you know, has to conform to the giant structure or the small structure, but hey, I can come up with these ideas. And even if they're kind of crazy and kind of different, we'll probably figure out how to make them work. And as you heard earlier in my talk, I've always tried to do something that's not that normal, maybe not that far out there, but just not the path that everybody's walking. I always have a foot or two off in the woods somewhere. So to be supported by Shana and the rest of the company and just being a few feet off the beaten path is a, is a thing I heavily appreciate it. Well, thank you. Gerard has a whole row of awards behind his head. I didn't know everybody did clear awards. Next time I got to do a blue <laughs> award. But Gerard was employee of the year and it was so sweet. He brought his mother as his date for our anniversary dinner. And so she got to be there. You didn't know that you were oh, going to be the employee of the year. And he reminded me to say that it was a very difficult choice. <laughs> but yeah, it was really wonderful. And I'm glad that you experienced that. It, I actually, at our All Hands recently said, answering these questions is hard because we are not a one size fits all. And our answers to your growth or your path to make more money are highly individualized. And we are looking at each individual person and what works best for them, how they best come to life. And I had a lot of experiences professionally where I was not able to bring my full self to work, right? Where I was expected to act in a box. And I think that's why I had to start my own was to say, we're going to be this company that is the differentiator. And I think the real future of engineering in general is creativity and expression. And that's not just diversity for diversity's sake, but the diversity of allowing people to speak up and just even actually show their work and feeling a comfort to 
the psychological safety of showing their work and throwing out ideas. We don't control the team all the time, right? It's people out there in different various environments. What is the future hold for you, Gerard? What's out there? I'm exploring too. I'm in the gardener phase. Dude, I'm going to interview you when you're 92 and you're going to say the same damn thing. <laughs> you're going to like have a whole series of things and you'll be like noodling on something new. I'd like to figure out how to get to that three or four videos a week. Well, I know you will get there. And I love that you've never put limits on yourself. And it's exciting to see someone out there continuing to blossom and grow and continue to try new things and thank you for your time at nyla it's always great to know you gerard and anytime you want to come back (laughs) we got a lot of c2s and c2e work ahead of us too thanks so much for listening to today's podcast please be sure to share it with friends and family if you'd like to follow us on social media you can find us on instagram facebook and linkedin under the outspoken podcast Thanks again and chin up, heads up, eyes forward.